This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and welcome to the How to Love Lip Podcast. For those of you who've been following us for a while now, thanks for helping us grow the podcast. Uh, if you want to help us do even more of that, tell a friend, text them an episode. Anyway, invite others to join in with us. This is our final week with Thornton Wilder, and as we finish up our time in Peru, meeting the characters and thinking through their fate in his classic bestseller, the Bridge of San Luis Rey. Last week we explored, although very briefly, you know, the beautiful country of Peru. Uh, we talked about the geographical setting of the book. We also discussed the historical setting where we highlighted the uh, colonial occupation of the country as well as the Spanish Inquisition. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> we should insert a sound effect there. <laughs> the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> we read the first sentence of the novel and... And killed all the main characters, pretty much. So after that, you'd think there's not much left to say, but apparently there is. So, Christy, after we've killed off all the main characters, what are we going to talk about this week? <laughs> I know. It does have a morbid beginning, and as we touched on last week, it's not going to really be one of those Mary cheery books. Uh, we listed out the names of the five characters who tumbled to their doom, and last week we left you with the cliffhanger. Ah! That oh we were going, <laughs> I know uh, that we were going to meet them again, but not to expect any compelling love stories. Uh, actually, I think we were told to expect the exact opposite. That all these characters were basically in dysfunctional relationships, and they are then hit with unexpected tragedy. So that's a double whammy. I know, and I'm not sure what would be the best cliche or pun. You have all these tempting sayings like. Stuck between a rock and a hard place, but that's not the right one. Or we need to let the other shoe fall. 
<laughs> Am I going in the wrong direction? <laughs> well, you left out stoned. Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe we should not be making puns. <laughs> well, here's the idea. Um, bad things don't necessarily happen to bad people, but the bad things maybe don't even happen to good people either. What we're going to see is bad things happen to regular people. And this is a book full of regular people from all social classes and walks of life. And there's a real deliberate attempt to represent all of those. And we're going to start with going out of the class system altogether because Brother Juniper is a priest and that's a little bit of a different class. So he comes close to dying himself on this bridge. He watches five people fall to their death And, of course, it's natural that he would try to think and find some reason for their death. He wants to make, because he's a priest, clearly, some religious sense to it, some theological meaning and purpose. And he decides that if he can only dig into the lives of the victims enough, surely he can discover what that purpose could possibly be. And so that's what he sets out to do. So, without any further ado, let's talk about these first two victims, which I think maybe are the most interesting, maybe even the most important. Gary, uh, tell us about the first two. Well, here I go butchering Spanish names again. But you're talking about uh, Donna Maria Marquesa de Montemayor and her maid, Pepita. Uh, she is described as one of the richest women in the entire country, and Pepita is an orphan, so there's that contrast. And we'll start with the richest and the poorest, and they seem to contrast in another way, too. Donna Maria is one of the meanest <laughs> ladies in Peru, and there's a lot of competition for that. Seriously. And Pepita is one of the kindest, so there are your extremes again. But really what is more interesting then the contrast is how they are described as being actually similar. It seems the whole point of the chapter is to focus on how lonely each of them really is, in spite of one being really rich and mean and the other being poor and kind. Well, another twist is we also are going to see that after her death, the Marquesa apparently is enshrined as kind of this literary legend of the Spanish language. And ironically, every school schoolchild... Uh, this isn't true, by the way. This is mere fiction, so she's not really... This is the background. <laughs> yeah. Mr. But Wilder put in their course. world, every school child will study the series of letters that she wrote to her daughter who lived in Spain over the course of her life. Of course, she never intended for any of those to be published or even be public, but she was incredibly articulate and expressive in these writings, and although none of them helped her have a better quality of life in real life, uh, they kind of develop who she was. And the narrator focuses primarily on who this woman is. And she's in this really messed up relationship with her daughter. And of course, we all uh, have seen these kinds of relationships before. But the Marquesa is one of those women who really tries to live vicariously through her daughter. What does that mean? It means that she has a child and she wants to live her life again a second time. And this time she's going to live her life through her child. And, of course, when people do this, it's unhealthy. It makes them miserable. Uh, But in her case, and I guess it would be everyone's case, if you want a second shot at life, it's because you 
blew the first one. <laughs> and uh, and that's how it is here. Clara, the daughter, is beautiful. And the Marquesa was ugly when she was young. And she had a horrible stuttering, stuttering problem. Uh, all in the money in the world cannot buy her some things. And one of those things was her mother's approval. So, or maybe, I don't know, if you have all the money in the world, you're supposed to be perfect. But anyway, she certainly couldn't be. And her mother was very disappointed. I don't know. But she ends up, um, the Marquesa, marrying a person who the author describes as a ruined nobleman, whatever that means, we don't know that much about him, except he's cold. He doesn't love her. He does love her money. And so this is the kind of relationship that Wilder is fleshing out. And we see the consequences of her life and her misery and how it just wretchedly creates this dysfunctional mother-daughter relationship that not only wrecks you know, her life, her daughter's life, but she hurts this little girl Pepita, too. Well... This is the cycle of what we would call the narcissistic parent. Mm. <laughs> we won't go into great detail there, but the only reason why I bring that up is because Thornton Wilder, once again, not a psychologist, makes a brilliant observation of how convoluted and bad their relationship is. Uh, and I find the language used to describe Donna Maria's relationship with her daughter very stereotypical of lots of dysfunctional mother-daughter relationships. At first, Wilder calls the Marquesa's love for her daughter, Clara, idolatrous, and that's a good word. And then Clara turns out to be what all little girls turn out to be who've been turned into idols or little gods. She's horrible, and by the age of eight, to quote the book, she is calmly correcting her mother's speech and presently regarding her with astonishment and repulsion. And I would like to point out, the daughter is now treating the mother the way the grandmother had treated the mother. Mm, that's it, exactly. Uh, the Marquesa, really, I think she is supposed to be as much as a real character as a stereotype. A lot of these characters, you're going to see, they, they tend to be a little bit flatter, maybe stereotypical. Uh, it seems that Wilder as a writer, really is concerned about what makes men and women uh, alike in spite of time and place. And what he's latched onto in this case is that the idea of a mother-daughter relationship, well, first of all, it's just never easy. It doesn't matter your cultural configuration. And lots of times, you know, it's kind of a sacred relationship, but it can be tragic. And of course, and this is a terrible example of one, no one wants to raise a horrible child and no one wants to be this kind of a woman. And yet we find that sometimes there are women that find themselves locked into this kind of place. So we're going to look at what the Marquesa has done. So she has taken all of her bitterness that she's experienced, perhaps from her mother, perhaps from this mess that she's made with her daughter, and she's passing it forward again onto an unsuspecting or an, and an undeserving person, this little Pepita. So the Marquesa is the victim of a terrible life circumstance, even though she's extremely wealthy, the most wealthy really, but instead of breaking the chain of pain, she does what is easier and maybe more natural to do. She's just passing it on to her daughter and then to this girl who works for her. And of course, 
I am a woman and I'm a mother. When I read this wretched narrative, you know, you have to think, oh, I hope I'm not like this because this is so destructive. And I know that when Wilder writes this, he wants you to read yourself into this and, and think exactly like that. No doubt. And again, his brilliance was as he shows the, the narcissistic chain goes on for generations. And of course, you think about people you know that are destructive or relationships that come close and it makes you look at yourself Kind of like when you get sick and then go online and read about diseases on WebMD, which you should not do. All For of a the sudden, same reason. Right, all of a sudden, you're afraid you have diseases you never had heard of before. Uh, it can be helpful, but it's easy to get carried away with that. And as I've told many students in my classes for years, you will learn enough psychology to be dangerous and not enough to be helpful. And that so goes for medicine as well. true. When you have your internet doctor. But when you read these passages, you know, you just kind of think like that. Yeah. Well, these two women are, are wretched the whole way through. I mean, the focus is mostly on Donna Maria. But the daughter's not any better. I mean, Donna Clara, the daughter, deliberately marries someone who lives in Spain for the express purpose of getting away from her mother. And yet she's got this codependent piece because even though she lives in Spain, she requires her mother's money to maintain a lifestyle to which she feels she's entitled. And entitled is a word that falls into the narcissistic narrative. The text makes this fine claim. It says, all the wealth in Peru would have been insufficient to maintain her in the grandiose style she fancied for herself. Oh, she is so worthy. (laughs) (laughs) Worthy indeed. Very entitled. Uh, She is one of those people that feels entitled to more of the world than the rest of us because of the greatness of her very essence. (laughs) And no explanation is needed. You just must accept the greatness of this person. And the mom feeds into this because she believes it too. Uh, I mean, possibly as an extension of her awesomeness and her entitlement. Well, and this wonderful dysfunction works all the way until the mom comes to visit her in Spain. And then they can't stand it. They can't be around each other. They blow things up. And the whole thing ends with the mom returning to Peru and without even saying goodbye. And that's where we get these series of letters, which is really her way, her only way of connecting with her daughter. And then, of course, we see that the daughter doesn't even read them. It's the husband that preserves them, and they eventually become state art, ironically. It says that night after night in her Baroque palace, she wrote and rewrote the incredible pages. And so you have a woman that you tend to not like, but then you tend to pity and you feel a bit of compassion for True, and and keep in mind that the the letters become historic uh, when they're removed from the context of the current situation. So, and that's one of the uh, the ironies that Thornton Wilder is wanting you to understand that in her present life, bad; in her life detached from context, good. Uh, and the letters were a busy box that, in many ways, kept her engaged in the world. But of course, that's sad and pathetic too. So what's a busy box? That's a fun word. (laughs) (laughs) Busy boxes are great. It's something that she does to keep herself busy. She doesn't have to do it. Kind of like a hamster in a cage, but it gives her, you know, some sort of fulfillment. In this case, it motivates her to get out of her house and engage the world. And she wants something to write about in her letters, so she goes to the theater. She meets people, and that sense, the letters become a reason of being, ironically. That's her busy box. Yeah. 
And yet, as far as the daughter's concerned, it's really ineffective. Uh, Wilder goes on to say that, and this is a quote, the knowledge that she would never be loved in return acted upon her ideas as a tide acts upon cliffs. Her religious beliefs went first. For all she could ask of a god or of immortality was the gift of a place where daughters love their mothers. Next, she lost her belief in the sincerity of those about her. She secretly refused to believe that anyone, herself accepted, loved anyone. All families lived in a wasteful atmosphere of custom and kissed one another with secret indifference. She saw that the people of this world moved about in an armor of egotism, drunk with self-gazing, a thirst for compliments, hearing little of what was said to them, unmoved by the accidents that befell their closest friends, in dread of all appeals that might interrupt their long communion with their own desires. What do you think of that? Um, my first impression is that's a lot of projection. <laughs> the Marquesa is accusing the outside world of everything she's internally guilty of. And I find it also interesting, and here's the other narcissistic trait, she loses her religion because God has failed her. She loses her faith in love because other people have failed. It's always the outside. Never once does she look reflectively at herself and say, Where am I the source of the problems in my life? Well, then it says this, the end of that paragraph. And when on the balcony her thoughts reached this turn, her mouth could contract with shame, for she knew that she too sinned, and that though her love of her daughter was vast enough to include all the colors of love, it was not without a shade of tyranny. She loved her daughter, not for her daughter's sake, but for her own. So there you have a bit of insight where at, at those lucid seconds i guess you you can see that and then it goes away <laughs> right well the i would say that the marquesa is not having those insights thornton wilder's providing them for <laughs> us to help uh, help flesh out her problem here uh anyway in all this there's an incredible sense of isolation that wilder is brilliant at creating donna maria is truly alone in this world and this has made her bitter and cruel and this appears to be in contrast to pepita uh, which, compared to everyone else you meet, is an angelic character, although she's been dealt a very difficult set of circumstances in life. She's an orphan who uh, has a very, very good soul. The abbess, the, the later who runs the orphanage in Lima and who is the one character that is involved in all the lives of all the characters in the story, she recognizes this beautiful soul and has specifically singled her out to be the heir she wants her to carry on the charity work that she's devoted her life to. You have to think, what an incredible endorsement or an honor, of course, for any human to be considered worthy of someone's legacy. But this little girl, seemingly nothing in the eyes of the world, stands out really to one of the most important women in Lima because of her goodness. I mean, how awesome would that be? Well, it seems the abbess intentionally put her in this very difficult household working for the Marquesa. I mean, a known and strange eccentric woman uh, as a stepping stone in learning how to handle perhaps rich people, the noble of the community, perhaps even difficult people. I mean, she's all three wrapped up in one person. Yeah, she is. Well, and the Marquesa has been just terrible to her. According to Pepita's letter, 
everyone in the household steals from the Marquesa, makes fun of her, basically does both. And Pepita, because of, I don't know, maybe her nobility of soul, but she feels kind of obligated to protect as much as she can. And she absorbs a lot of abuse from the other servants because she won't partake in what they're doing. So that makes her alone. But of course, the Marquesa is not her friend either. So in the end, and this is how we're going to end this section, while she's waiting for the Marquesa to finish visiting the shrine before they walk back across the bridge to Lima, she writes a letter to the abbess and she asks to come back because she's so miserable living in this household. Well, the Marquesa is going to find the letter after this very, she'd had the spiritual moment in prayer up at the shrine and kind of made some sort of resolution to to be a better person, I guess. But when she reads Pepita's letter, because she's in this place of spiritual cleansing, she kind of is very affected. Uh, She had gone to pray. She'd been at the church. She's wanting to restore the relationship with her daughter. Her daughter's pregnant. And apparently uh, this is the condition that makes her want to react positively to this letter. She wants to make things right, not just with Pepita, but with her daughter. And then there's this idea that things are really going to get better. So they leave the hotel near the shrine and they're going back to Lima. And of course that's where they fall to their doom. Essentially what Thornton is describing is the human tendency to pass on a legacy of negativity instead of doing the hard work of breaking the chain and cycle of negativity, letting it end with you and making a positive change of letting the bitterness die inside and move forward in a positive way. I mean, Pepita has taken approach number two, obviously. Donna Maria has done the easier and the more common thing of passing on the legacy of bitterness. And deciding to make a change in a sense could be as sort of like crossing a bridge, like from one state of existence to another. I get the feeling that that's the idea with these characters, but sadly for these two women, they will never get to the other side. Yeah, it does seem that the bridge is a symbol for something. And, you know, obviously I look at the title and I think that, and then of course everything is about this bridge. It's clearly the center of everything in the book. Uh, But the bridge is broken And so it makes it confusing and difficult to kind of isolate exactly. You have to think about it, the whole book. What what is this supposed to represent? It feels confusing. It feels very sad. We're at this point where things are going to be better. There's a promise of hope. And then we have this abrupt worst possible outcome. Um, The Paracool, or Camilla, is really the other major character that survives uh, this tragedy. We're going to see her later on in the book. We see that she is the mother of one of the victims. And I think a very similar thing happens to her. She has a bit of an epiphany too. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's all these connections, but they're not really, I don't know, real, uh, maybe circumstantial. Though there are a few obvious connections, the paracol is one, but another one that really stands out to me is the this lady, the abbess. I mean, uh, she seems to emerge in everyone's story. So, Christy, what's her role in the story? I know. Uh, there is a connection. She is in all the sections. And honestly, there's a way to look at the book to see her as kind of the protagonist, if you want to find one in this book. I don't really think you can. But she's clearly this thread that's going through the community. She's clearly the most good-hearted person we really read about. She's an influencer. It's interesting that she's kind of constructed as a leader and a foil to the religious and governmental leaders 
that are running Lima because they're not uh, good. The viceroy is terrible. He's selfish. The archbishop isn't any much, isn't much better. He doesn't seem as corrupt. He but he know, talks about all the priests being corrupt, and he doesn't really know how to control the place. The viceroy will find out is going to take Camilla or the Paracool. Those are the same person. She goes by two names. He takes her as his mistress. They have three kids, one that dies in the accident. Uh, But to me, that makes him a scumbucket. (laughs) It's a literary term. (laughs) I know. I bet she's the opposite. I mean, she isn't running Lima, but she's mothering Lima and basically embodies all this Christian goodness, virtue, compassion, grace, everything that these other men, through this professed devotion to the Catholic Church, through Christianity, are supposed to really be doing. And we see that embodied in this woman. She's the one that saved Pepita as an orphanage. And then we're going to see in the next section, she's raised these two boys, these twins that we're going to talk about. The next section features a very interesting type of relationship that very few of us have any experience with. And that is the brotherly bond of twins. And twins will tell you they have very close relationships. And the the two twins, Esteban and Manuel, again, they're orphans saved by the Abess, are connected so closely that they have a secret language that only they understand. I know. It says this, Love is inadequate to describe the tacit, almost ashamed oneness of these brothers. And yet, side by side with this, there existed a need for one another so terrible that it produced miracles as naturally as the charged air of a sultry day produces lightning. The brothers were scarcely aware of it themselves, but telepathy was a common occurrence in their lives. And when one returned home, the other was always aware of it when his brother was still several streets away. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, and of course... What would come between this super close bond? Do we need to ask? Of course it is. Dun, da, 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 a woman. Of course. <laughs> I did find it interesting that it wasn't love for a woman per se. No. But, but yes, a woman. <laughs> Just a woman. Uh, Manuel becomes infatuated with the paracole, who is the famous and gorgeous actress that is the star of Lima. His relationship with the Paracol is one where he works for her as a scribe, and he's paid to write secret letters. But he does do this without telling Esteban. And as twins, they've never had secrets between them before. And when he finds out, Esteban is jealous. Well, of course he is. And Manuel, you know, he, they have this confrontation. Manuel breaks the relationship. Okay, I'm done with her. Which I found interesting. Esteban didn't actually verbally ask him to do this. I guess it was implied. Uh, but it, to me, it reminded me of one of those situations where, you know, I don't ask and then you do it anyway and I tell you not to. And I insist. No, I insist. And then, you you know, the person with the stronger will wins his way. And that's kind of what happens. So Mar- Manuel, despite Esteban's saying he didn't have to, gives up the paracle or his relationship, even though it's not really a relationship. But he resents it. He resents Esteban for having to do this. And Esteban doesn't really even find that out until he gets sick and he's dying. And he has those delirious fevers that makes you say things that you're unaware. <laughs> and all serum. this, Yeah, truth. All this kind of comes out right before he dies. That's kind of sad. Uh, yes. And, and the guilt that Esteban experiences after he's dead is not only overwhelmingly sad, but he's overwhelmingly alone. 
as a twin. He feels guilty for being the reason his brother gave up this infatuation. He misses this person that basically has been his soulmate. I mean, this sudden break has the understandable effect of making him want to kill himself. And he might have if the abyss hadn't intervened. She found a sea captain and got him to talk to Esteban into coming to sea. Esteban needs to get away, start over, and find a new identity. And after a lot of prodding, he agrees. And again, we have another person who, on a trajectory of improving their life, getting out of despair, is going to cross the bridge at the wrong time and plunge to their death right before the change. The end of this section is again sad. The captain has to go down the ravine to the bottom to cross because he has all this stuff, this luggage that he's got to oversee. But Esteban, you, you never would want to go down and up when you can just go across. So he can walk across the rope bridge because it's a lot easier. His final words, well, this is the captain's final words to Esteban are these, and I think it's, Interesting. He says this, we do what we can. We push on Esteban as best we can. It isn't for long, you know. Time keeps going by. You'll be surprised at the way time passes. And then the text reads, they started for Lima. When they reached the bridge of the San Luis Rey, the captain descended to the stream below in order to supervise the passage of some merchandise. But Esteban crosses, the bri- crosses by the bridge and fell with it. Uh, I mean, it's just stated so matter-of-factly with no commentary. (laughs) It really is, and there's not even any interpretation. And this brings us to part four, when we see the final two characters to die in the fall. Uncle Pio and Jaime, the Paracool's son. Of course, we already know who the Paracool is because she's already surfaced. She surfaced in the first section, and she surfaced in the second section. Uh, But this part tells the story of how she got to be who she is. She's this young, talented orphan, and she's basically, you know, found by a talent scout or an agent or whatever you want to call this guy. We're going to call him Uncle Pio. She's on the street performing. He finds her. He takes her in. He helps her. He gets her these amazing opportunities. And before long, she's performing in the greatest theater in Lima. And I will say I think it's historical fact that there was this resurgence or the surge of art and development in Lima at this time. And of course, she's personifying all of that. She's the lady in the middle of all the plays, the beauty. She charms. She delivers the lines. And she's the one that Manuel was in love with. Ultimately, though, she's going to not want to be an actress. And she's going to hook up with the Viceroy. And she's going to have three kids. One interesting but terrible fact in all of that is that in her mind or in her time period, it's more respectable to be the mistress of the Viceroy of Lima than to be an actress. Oh, dear. (laughs) Mm. It's terrible to me, obviously, as well as to the abess at the time. By the way, she's kind of a really feminist character in the book there's these large sections there's a lot of them where the abbess keeps talking about trying to get these girls to elevate their view of themselves apparently they have this mindset that in order to get ahead in the world you needed to sexualize yourself or make yourself presentable or, or you're just identifying with a man and the abbess was always in this book trying to fight that within the girls at the orphanage and at the abbey 
I noticed that too, which I found particularly interesting in light of the fact that Wilder is publishing this in a time period where not a lot was being said about women's independence. I mean, women didn't get the right to vote in the United States until 1920, uh, yet he has the best giving lots of advice to women about how to view themselves as capable and independent and not to be defined by beauty or which men are connected with in whatever way and he does have a very feminist vantage point most of the way through, very interestingly. Even in the first section of the book, the Marquesa, despite her meanness, is clearly a brilliant woman. I know this really is a book about strong women. All these stereotypes are in the feminine form. Obviously, they can take, uh, you can make them apply to men as well, but he has them very much in, in the lives of women. And the Abbess specifically has been trying to get the paracle for years to see herself as something outside of these physical constructs of an actress, uh, not just because of the time period, but because getting out of that mindset based on her profession. And of course, you know, that's a destructive identity to women in acting. I, I would assume would be even more difficult to break that because you're in front of a camera or in, on a stage and the paracle just can't do it. Uh, she can't get out of the mindset that her identity has to do with what she looks like and her physical charms. And she sees everything that she's achieved in the world, basically having been an accomplishment of her looks and her charms. Although I would disagree with that. When you see how she's performing on these stages, it, I don't know that you can hold the attention of an entire city for all that time just being pretty. She obviously had a very powerful personality and much more to her than that. But she definitely didn't see it that way. And we know that because when she gets smallpox, she loses it. She loses her looks. And because of the scars on her face, she never comes out again. She's going to go into isolation, take uh, her son with her and never come out. Gary, I'm not really familiar with smallpox. Obviously, it's not something we have a lot of. We've been vaccinated against it. But tell us a little bit about what this disease is about and why would it have been so impactful on this character? Well, first of all, it spreads like most viruses through coughs and sneezes and kissing and sharing drinks. I mean, it could even be transmitted by skin to skin contact or through blood contacts. So it's just like everything we've ever heard about COVID, SARS, <laughs> and every other modern day epidemic. I mean, it was an yes. epidemic. Yes, yeah. indeed. You're exactly right. And smallpox was a very deadly epidemic all over the Americas. I mean, we see even Abigail Adams in the, in, uh, the American colonies making history by forcing her children to take crude vaccines in an age when that was considered completely insane. And uh, However, today, there's no evidence of naturally occurring smallpox transmission anywhere on planet Earth. Thank, thank goodness. Thank goodness. The last epidemic we had in the United States of smallpox occurred in 1949. But just to describe it, it starts out like the flu. And however, victims also experience rashes on their face and arms. And this is what happens to the pericole. In those cases where smallpox killed people in real life, which, remember, is not today, this doesn't happen anymore. We have all of our vaccinations, but back in that time period, it could cripple your immune system. What happened to the paracol, and what was very common is that she got lesions on her face. These lesions are deep, and they look like blisters and are hideous. You can have hundreds of them on your face. 
maybe thousands. So think of that many blisters covering every inch of your face. You can imagine how ugly and disfiguring it would be. The scar tissue would stay with you permanently, leaving you extremely disfigured and scarred for the rest of your life. And for an actress accompanying or accustomed to being famous and adored, I can't even imagine a worse fate. Well, clearly neither could she. Uh, the victim is not her, though. The victim is Uncle Pio, and Uncle Pio is the man who found her. And At first, I kind of thought he might be a creeper, but he he's not. He's this strange, you know, charming little man of the theater. He's definitely eccentric. He's got all this passion for the arts, and he makes Pyracle famous, not to have any relationship with her other than something that would be uh, noble, although there's always this speculation that they're involved. It's just not true. He loves her like a daughter, and he loves building the theater and the theater culture in Lima, and he loves everything about the art they're making together. So he's devastated when she chooses to dump him. She quits the theater. She changes her name to Michaela and has nothing to do with anything that had been a part of her life. She has these three kids with the Viceroy. Uh, and because she has the sin of being an actress, she has to go years before the town will respect her for being just the, um, I don't know, the mistress. And she finds a way to get her kids legitimate. Apparently there's a process for all of this. So she moves out of town, lives in this villa for five years, but then catches smallpox. And the ugliness from the smallpox you know, ends her pursuit of greatness. There's this vast fall from grace. And after the disease, she never comes out again. And you see her losing everything. And she's at the, by the end of this section, she's living in total isolation, total poverty. She's got nothing. Her son, Jaime, who was described as being beautiful, he's sickly and nobody cares about her and she doesn't want them to. Uncle Pio is the only one who thinks of her and he tries to get to her and she pushes him away and she tries again and he won't give up till finally he forces his way into her life and makes a deal and says, I'm taking your son back. He needs to have a chance. He needs to have an education. He deserves to have his own life. And she reluctantly, they make this deal. She agrees to it. And on their way back to Lima, of course, that's... uh, where we see the fateful death of those two. Um, Gary, why don't you read for us the very end of this chapter? It's kind of sad, but it's worth reading. They set off together in a cart, but soon Uncle Pio became aware that the jolting was not good for the boy. He carried him on his shoulder. As they drew near to the bridge of San Luis Rey, Jaime tried to conceal his shame, for he knew that one of those moments was coming that separated him from other people. He was especially ashamed because Uncle Pio had just overtaken a friend of his, a sea captain. And just as they got to the bridge, he spoke to an old lady who was traveling with a little girl. Uncle Pio said that when they had crossed the bridge, they would sit down and rest, but it turned out not to be necessary. So sad. And those were the people that we just read about were the people that all die on the bridge. Well, it is. And once again, they were walking towards a better life. Uh, All the people who died were on an upward trajectory. Things had been bad, but were on the way to improvements and things were beginning to change and the bridge just aborts all of their dreams. 
Which brings us to the last part of the book, part five, after they're all dead, and it starts like this. A new bridge of stone has been built in the place of the old, but the event has not been forgotten. It has passed into the proverbial expression, I may see you on Tuesday, unless the bridge falls. That's got to be oh, terrible. <laughs> wow, I hate for that to be your legacy. I know. Uh, and the conclusions that Brother Juniper was to conclude after this investigation, what are they? Well, for one, he admits that it's just a difficult question. I think this is an interesting line. He says this, the discrepancy between faith and the facts is greater than is generally assumed. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds deep. What does it mean? Well, I think it means that the calculus to determine anything about life, if you're going to talk metaphysically, is just not that simple. (laughs) Well, I think you're forced to agree with that. I mean, you are. The omniscient narrator who's telling the story, story basically switches at this point out of you know, this very formal way of he's that he's been talking about all these characters. And in this last section, it kind of relates to us much more informally when he talks about Brother Juniper's pursuit of the truth and the way that he suggests that Brother Juniper is just becomes obsessed. He comes, he wants, he's so obsessed with determining every detail of their lives that he goes on for six years and he never fully knows the full scale of the complexity of the lives of really what are basically pretty simple people. It says he never knew them. And that's interesting. There's so much to every human being. Even after six years of devoting your life entirely to studying somebody, you, you have to walk away saying, I don't even know them. Not only that, but the Spanish Inquisition found his book to be heretical and they burned it, but not just a book. They will torch him as well. I found it interesting that they burned him, even though it seems every single person in town found him really to be a sincere follower of the church. I mean, he had been devoted and even dogmatic in pursuit of his Catholic faith. I know. It, I just can't even imagine. We don't think about what it would be like, thankfully, to watch somebody burn. There was a little delegation from the village of Puerto and Nina. Goodness, two. Piety, five. Usefulness, ten. And others stood with drawn, puzzled faces while their little friar was given to the congenial flames. Even then, even then, there remained in his heart an obstinate nerve insisting that at least St. Francis would not utterly have condemned him, and, not daring to call upon a greater name, since he seemed so open to error in these matters, he called twice upon St. Francis, and leaning upon a flame, he smiled and died. Ugh. It's just so cold, no interpretation, and we're left watching a smiling priest. They're saying congenial flame, burn to death, and then there's these dots designating that's the end of the section, kind of cold. And that's where Wilder ends it. We seem to switch points of view again because now we're looking first into the mind of the Viceroy, who has lost his only son, Jaime, but then into Camilla, or the Paracol, who feels incredible guilt about everything that has happened. It appears there's being held a memorial service for the victims of the fall, and everyone is present, the Viceroy, the Abess, the Paracol, Donna Clara, the daughter from Spain. All the characters are present at the closing scene. Which is interesting. You know, we see everybody who's ever been associated with these people come together, and the narrator is going to focus more narrowly 
on these three women that kind of remain, the Abbess, Dona Clara, which remember that's the daughter of the mean lady, and the Paracool, or otherwise known as Camilla. And this is where I think it shifts a bit more positively. Dona Clara uh, and the, well, the Paracool, or Camilla, however you want to talk about her, they have really been changed by the loss of these people who loved them, and they really didn't love them back properly. Remember, Donna Clara was hideous to the mother, and now she realizes that, and she looks at herself. They use the word self-reproach to describe how she feels about herself. And the Paracool has done the same thing to Uncle Pio, this man who has done everything for her, even to the very end when he went to get her son. And she's lost her son lost her only son to this tragedy, but she really hasn't even just lost her sons because the Viceroy is going to take her daughters away and send them off to a convent in Spain. That can't be good. No. So she's alone. She's totally alone. And she feels, again, I think that it's her fault. She's done this to herself, and she's coming to the Abbey. So we have these two lonely women, and they come to visit the Abbess. So I said, really, is like this motherly figure. She loves everyone. She has such a heart. She's loved these orphans and she's loved and lost here too so the survivors besides the abess really are not the best people in the story and the abess is given to giving them these beautiful words she says this all all of us have failed one wishes to be punished one is willing to assume all kinds of penance but do you know my daughter that in love i scarcely dare say it But in love, our very mistakes don't seem to be able to last long. And then she's going to say this, and I love this line. Now learn, learn at last that anywhere you may expect grace. It's really a really lovely line. She's telling them, it doesn't matter that you were horrible. Even you were horrible to them, even to their deaths. There is still grace for you. And that's a lovely idea that can speak to all of humanity. Not even if you're horrible to someone to the moment of their that doesn't. It's not all lost, not even in death. It, it is a, a great idea. Uh, it's the idea that there is always opportunity, that there's always redemption. I mean, not even death can steal that from us, because love doesn't end with death as bitterness does not. You can pass the evil and bitterness to the next generation, or you can stop the chain of pain with yourself and pass on love. And that seems to be the meaning of the bridge. I know. So you say, so how can I allow redemption to come after death? And that's how the book ends, because the abyss is going to show how. How can you make something redemptive of a relationship that is utterly ended? And so the abyss is here showing the work of the abbey. She's showing them the orphans, and they're interested in the sick. And these are women that have never been interested. Clara and the Paracool have never been interested in anything but themselves, their entire existence. And now they're here in this soup kitchen, the idea being that these women are going to change their legacy and choose to pass love forward, love that they never reciprocated to the people that love them, but now they're going to pass it onward, leaving a legacy that extends the love that someone gave them past one individual life and into the lives of other people. And I think that's why people like to quote this novel 
when they see natural disasters that seem to have no explanation. When Tony Blair quoted uh, after 9-11 this book, he's thinking about this idea. And of course, the most famous passage of this whole book is the very last paragraph in the book. And I think it's a nice place uh, where we can end today. So let's obviously listen to these very famous words. So the abyss is in the abbey with the sick people. So let's look at these closing words. And those who lay in their beds there felt that they were within a wall that the abyss had built for them. Within all was light and warmth, and without was the darkness they would not exchange, even for relief from pain and from dying. But even while she was talking, other thoughts were passing in the back of her mind. Even now, she thought, almost no one remembers Esteban and Pepita but myself. Camilla alone remembers her Uncle Pio and her son, this woman, her mother, but soon we shall die, and all memory of those five will have left the earth, and we ourselves shall be loved for a while and forgotten. But the love will have been enough. All those impulses of love return to the love that made them. Even memory is not necessary for love. There is a land of the living and a land of the dead, and a bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning. The end. The end. <laughs> it's a hopeful book. It's a nice idea. It's certainly not a simple one. No, it's not. It's not. All right. Well, we wrapped up another one. Yes, Next we Next week, did. we'll be on to some historical documents. Yes, we will. And thanks for being with us today. And let me remind you again, if you're following along with us, tell your friends about us. Share a podcast via a text message or some other way. Follow us on the, the How to Love Lit page on Facebook or on Instagram. Also, check out our webpage, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We look forward to moving on with you in the future. Peace out. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.